Welcome to the one and only Interior Design Book Podcast. Decorating by the Book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. Uh, my name is Owen Hopkins. My book is called The Brutalists, Brutalism's Best Architects. And it brings together 200 of the most interesting brutalist architects from across the world, starting way back in the 1930s and coming right up to the present, but with a big focus on the 60s and 70s. For years, brutalism was shunned by popular opinion, widely perceived as architecture so manifestly bad, so obviously against natural human scale values and aesthetics, that it was barely architecture at all. Where dissenters existed, they were confined to a small circle of eccentrics, enthusiasts, and contrarians who seemingly reveled in their admiration of something so obviously beyond the pale. I have never even considered the fact that this was in a category of architecture. Until I had Hilton Carter on my show, he's a plant stylist here in the United States, and he adores brutalist architecture with what he calls the perfect balance of hard and soft and warm and cold. So what is the current popular opinion of brutalism in 2023? Well, that's the essential question, really. Uh, The fact this book exists indicates that there is an appetite and a, and a, a widespread interest in brutalism and and that I mean that's certainly been been borne out over the last decade or so there's been a proliferation of books but also uh, prints of mugs key rings brutalist models and a whole host of social media accounts dedicated to brutalism but at the same time I think uh, alongside this revival of interest in, in brutalism and this kind of this new generation of enthusiasts that have that have appeared. There is still, a, you know, vast swathes of opinion that that is that, that, that still hates it, that still sees it as the antithesis of what architecture could or or should be. And in some ways, that negative response has even hardened uh, in recent years. So, what what you know, in during the 1980s and 1990s, you know, popular opinion about brutalism was almost universally negative. I'd say now it's polarized and one of the things i find so fascinating about the style is is the way it is so incredibly polarizing now people who love it and there are people for whom you know as your introduction said it's 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 not even architecture at all it's it's so far beyond the pale when did the style emerge there are multiple brutalisms and that's one of the things i i try to tease out in the introduction and it's obviously reflected in the the massive range of of architects that are included uh, in in the uh, the following pages, but brutalism is usually considered to have emerged in the 1950s and as an English thing, uh, then called the new brutalism. The actual word itself uh, has nothing to do with being brutal, although it, it's often um, seen uh, in in those terms. Given the nature of some of the buildings, it derives from the French "beton brut," which uh, tr- literally translates as raw concrete. 
And it emerged in England through the work of a, of a, of a group of architects, but also artists, filmmakers, writers, critics that were uh, attempting to reformulate modernism, something that had emerged uh, in the in the 1920s, rethinking the direction of modernism after the Second World War in light of mass culture, the advent of TV, colour magazines. What role could architecture play in this? world that could not ignore these changes in popular culture, but embrace them, but in a way that doesn't mean giving up the modernist principles of architecture being this tool for improving the world. You know, one can pinpoint brutalism's origins but at the same time it sprung up in lots of different places and and very much was the architecture that, that you know, manifested uh, the zeitgeist of the 50s, 60s and 70s in Europe, in the US, South America, you know, across, across the world. So you talk in the book about the idea that architecture itself might affect meaningful social change. Can you chat just a little bit about that? The vast majority of brutalist buildings are social housing. Uh, and you know, brutalism, I guess, picked up the mantle of the sort of first generation modernism of, of Le Corbusier, uh, who, you know, imagined these great cities planned along regular lines and these great grids with these sort of cruciform towers. Brutalism took that ambition, but was ostensibly more interested in the city as found. It was it was less interested in kind of the blank slate that Le Corbusier wanted to build his city on, and was and was certainly in in the kind of the new brutalism manifestations was deeply interested in how brutalist buildings could draw from the sort of materiality, the patterns of use that existed in cities. In practice, it it, it, it kind of it didn't always reflect that or actually kind of quite quite rarely reflected that and and you know found form in you know large social housing uh, estates which in a very practical sense were providing new decent habitation for literally millions of people across the world at a time when I mean certainly speaking from the sort of uh, the British point of view a lot of people were still living in really rundown houses with no central heating with outdoor toilets and, and you know problems with damp suddenly entering this this new world that brutalist housing specifically offered was extraordinary and profound change. And what brutalist architects often did was to use architecture as a way of manifesting this new world. When I think about brutalism, I have a vision, an image in my mind. But as I was reading this book, I kept trying to figure out how the Hunt Stanton School in Norwich, England, fits the brutalist description, since it's steel-framed. And that brings me to the question posed by critic Reiner Bonham. Is that how you pronounce his name? Rainer Bonham. Rainer Bonham. Is brutalist an ethic or aesthetic? Well, that's the fundamental question. So he was one of those founders, I suppose, of, of, of new brutalism in England in the 1950s. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a famous article in the Architectural Review in 1955, which kind of codified it, and then a, a, a subsequent book uh, a decade later. And he identified the, the school you mentioned, Hans Stanton School, by Alison and Peter Smithson as a you know, landmark brutalist project. But as you say, it's steel and glass, almost a kind of Miesian architectural 
language, you know, looking at uh, the, the projects that Mises was doing in Chicago at the time, the IIT in, in, in particular. But for Bannon, it was this, this archetypal brutalist project because it uh, embodied this this truth, this almost like a radical truth. It was this, there was no attempt to hide the fact that this was steel or glass. It was you know, what you saw was essentially what you got in the building, and uh, you know that was much generally much easier to do with concrete because you know concrete is this material that can be both an external surface and also provide the structure, but. Um, for Bannon, uh, the, the Hunstanton School really kind of manifests this in, in a very clear way, perhaps because it was an exception which kind of proved the rule. And this question of whether it's an aesthetic or an, an ethic <laughs> is is a really fascinating one, uh, because, of course, the answer is both. <laughs> I mean, New Brutalism was imbued with this radical spirit of how architecture could transform the world and architects being kind of very much kind of leaders of that process. But at the same time, the buildings that they created were not just simple products of this ethical or idealistic position. They reflected it through aesthetics. So it's impossible really to, 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 to separate the two. And, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about brutalism and, and as I kind of explore it in the introduction of the book is how it takes competing ostensibly opposed or sort of paradoxical positions and brings them together so yeah this that, that aesthetic ethical aesthetic question I think is always a little bit of a red herring because of course the answer is brutalism is, is very much both Brutalists made the future real, showed us the future was here, and pushed a futuristic idea to its limits by cutting-edge engineering. I'd love for you to describe Zvi Hecker's City Hall in Israel, and how do you think his time growing up in Krakow and Samarkand in Uzbekistan influenced his style? That City Hall is, you know, an extraordinary building. It's almost impossible to describe. It's a sort of array of intersecting geometries it's got you know ostensibly this familiar brutalist building form which is the inverted ziggurat and one sees that in countless examples from the city library in birmingham in in the uk to boston city hall but here it's taken kind of several steps further than it's usually seen with this repeating diamond pattern on the outside and then a kind of superstructure that emerges from what ground level appears as a, as a flat roof although it's there's it's, it's not flat uh these extraordinary kind of geometric forms that sort of protrude out that you could only really do in raw concrete <laughs> you know like uh, i mean you could do them other things in this pad with steel but but they're the sort of things that that kind of emerge very much from the particularities uh of of that material um where this design came from <laughs> where you know whether it to what extent it reflects uh uh, uh hecker's time in 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 Krakow or in Uzbekistan, you know, for example, is is really impossible to say. I mean, it's always one of the sort of fundamental questions with architects is how their kind of early experiences, you know, growing up in certain places are manifest later on in their architecture. I mean, sometimes it's very, very clear, very obvious, very direct. But uh, on other occasions, it's 
it's it's very hard to draw these these comparisons. Most architects tend to resist these kind of direct lines or or lineages. They like to see their ideas as 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 wholly original. I'd love for you to chat a bit about Augustin Hernandez Navarro's Praxis Home in Mexico. And I seem to associate brutalism with colder climates, and I am not sure why. But this home is fantastic, and it looks like it's growing right up out of the mountain. Yeah, it really does. So, it, one of the things that uh, I hadn't when I had started when I started doing the book, I hadn't quite appreciated how much brutalist architecture that there is in in South America and in in Central America. I'd kind of obviously was familiar being from the UK with, with European brutalism, US brutalism, the brutalism that, that happened in the kind of the, the Soviet bloc um, in in Japan. And I was kind of conscious that yes, it was it was big in South America, but I hadn't realised quite how big and you know there it's used as as a way of creating architecture that is decidedly modern but at the same time has this ability to draw from pre-columbian architecture in its in its massing in its sort of monumentality to some extent in its in its materiality this particular example i mean it certainly has the monumentality that one associates with the architecture of uh, pre-Columbian uh, civilizations, as you say, it 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 it, it juts out from a slope into a valley and emerges. Almost, it's, it's a kind of almost like a sort of spaceship form. It's this incredible stripped-back geometry, massive angled cantilevers, this strip ribbon window i mean it is it's a quite sort of staggering creation that one could only really associate with brutalism i mean it's got that that bravado uh in it that is that is you know you find in 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 so much brutalism that you can't think any other architect working in any other different period or in any other different style would conceive a kind of double trapezoidal form that that juts out over this ridge i mean it is thrillingly uh, sculptural I mean, it's it's quite quite extraordinary that that uh, that the home would would be manifested through this uh, through these ex- you know, extraordinary visual language. So, as much as the architecture looked forward, it also looked back. An example is Chamberlain, Powell, and Bond's Barbican Estate in London. What are the elements that remind us of days gone by? I mean, it's there in the very name, <laughs> you know, Barbican. The Barbican is literally in, in medieval architecture, a kind of like a gatehouse on a on a castle or a fortress. And although this estate was credibly radical in its design and 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 modern, with these three towers that emerge up with elevated walkways, with lakes and waters, you know, it's just a kind of an amazing uh, configuration. There are many, many elements that that look that, that, that seek to try to integrate this this sort of futuristic side with looking back, especially at medieval architecture. So there are some walkways that are covered walkways where you're looking through these these win- very narrow windows, which are basically brutalist versions of the windows that you find in in, in medieval castles that archers would stick there. Uh, bows and arrows out so they could they could shoot uh, down at uh, marauding uh, invaders while protected by the building uh, it's quite it's quite a kind of extraordinary uh, experience 
And then these these three uh, massive concrete towers that, that I mentioned, the, the, the triangular in plan, that even now as London has become blatantly a sort of high-rise city, at least in its in its urban centre, these are still really distinctive landmarks. They are sat on these massive columns, which are in form the columns that you would find in Romanesque architecture <laughs> that you would find in some of you know the great Romanesque cathedrals of Britain, like, like Durham, so these massive, round, really paired back with these uh, capitals that are inspired by loosely derivative, sort of simplified versions of of classical capitals. So it, it's, it's this sort of fascinating thing of, of walking around this, this sort of an urban environment that's, that's 1970s, but is also manifest of the future as it was imagined in the 1970s. But also there are these little moments, these fragments of, of looking back to the, the, the early the early history of, of architecture on that site and in the UK more broadly. So then uh, we can go further down the rabbit hole and examine the philosophy that states that the universe and its various parts ought to be considered alive and naturally ordered, as seen in George Adelon's, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Adelon, I suppose, French accent on it, yeah. Oui, <laughs> oui. <laughs> can you talk a bit about the Saint-Marie-Léon School in France where art and architecture meet? This particular building is, is incredibly hard to categorize. It, it, you know, it emerges from an existing, I think, late medieval building. And it's this sort of alien addition onto the side. But yet, at the same time, it's it's weirdly in keeping with it. And this is particularly the case in the book where it's, you know, it's shown as a black and white photograph. So that the grayscale effect actually serves to to unify it formally. In, in Adion's work, I mean, he very much sought to blur art and architecture and this is manifest in, in quite a lot of brutalist architecture uh, but he was trained initially as uh, a painter was very interested in post-war uh, modernist abstract painting and this is this is really sort of manifest in his architecture which is very much sort of buildings as sculpture in a sense but also buildings that almost bypass sculptures so there's, there's this kind of alchemical process of taking two-dimensional making it three-dimensional suddenly abuse it with all this sort of extraordinary um, energy but as i say the most dramatic bit is this protrusion from the school's historic buildings which is this you know it's a swirl mass of forms and structures and, and shapes. It has a kind of organic uh, quality. There's a sort of petrified element to it of, of an organic form that's been fossilized over millions of years that, that is imbued with this kind of weight and of pressure and of history that kind of emerges from this historic building in a way that is, that is alien. But because it is imbued with this almost sort of primal force, there's a sense that almost that the situation is reversed in in the sense and what Adion created is something that, that appears to you know massively predate what was there and perhaps it's the the more obviously architectural elements of pitched roofs and its turrets and its round-headed windows it's a building that is powerful but extremely enigmatic at the same time and then we move on to the volcanic architecture of Fernando Menes with the Holy Redeemer Church in the Canary Islands, comprised of four massive volumes. I am so curious about this form. He was born in Tenerife, Canary Islands, and it's like all the Canary Islands, it's a volcanic island. And the, the volcanic landscape very much defines 
Tenerife. I mean, on the coast, and his work is very much emerges from this landscape. It's it's massive. It's geological. It's it's imbued with these sort of rough materiality. But then he, he works the forms. So there, you know, there are moments of of, of delicacy. So it's, it's as if these kind of geological forms have emerged from the ground. But then you've had the the work of kind of of, of human craftsmanship. This church appears like it's always been there. The rest of the neighbor that surrounds it has actually grown up around this church. It's architecture that's sort of born from the landscape in the most extraordinary way. In your opinion, what is the most iconic, brutalist building in the world? I could give I give you an answer for every day of the year, perhaps, but I would pick something that is or was, because it no longer exists, close to home, and that's the Trinity Square car park in Gateshead in the uh, northeast of England. And the Trinity Square car park towered over the, the town of Gateshead. It's this extraordinary local landmark. It has had a shopping centre at the base in typical brutalist fashion, split onto multiple levels. It was almost like a kind of mega structure. And then in its core was this multi-storey car park that was manifest in, in just the, you know, the most sort of rugged, stripped back, typically brutalist way. And, and it was extremely controversial. A lot of people really, really hated it. And uh, it was sadly demolished. Uh, just over a decade ago and replaced by a series of buildings which I think probably are more functional. It, it now works rather better as a, as a sort of shopping district, but it's one of those buildings that perhaps if it had survived another decade, it, it might have been, it may not have been knocked down. The taste might have turned just enough and it might have it might have survived and found a way to be reinvented, but but sadly it went and is now this kind of ghostly presence. Generally, the people who own the home decorate it with furnishings that harmonize with the exterior. I wonder about decorating a brutalist style residence. Could you please talk a little bit about the interior decorating aspect of it? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Some brutalist architects treated and particularly private houses, almost as a total work of art, and their design extended to the interior treatment and, and, and particular choice of materials, and even the even the choice of furniture. And many other brutalist buildings, brutalist social housing. You know, you're just left with flats that you get to furnish however you want it. A few years ago, I had the uh, pleasure, and it was a pleasure, of going to Balfron Tower, uh, which is an Erno Goldfinger tower block in East London uh, for various reasons. One of the flats had been temporarily taken over by the National Trust, the sort of heritage uh, organisation in, in the UK, which which runs uh, most country houses and castles and things. And they'd taken over one of the flats and they had commissioned the designer, Wayne Hemingway, and his daughter, Tilly, to sort of deck it out in uh, furnishings that would have been popular when the building was completed in, in the sort of uh, mid-1960s. And it really was this kind of extraordinary experience of stepping into this, this world that was sort of familiar, but also incredibly distant with the sort of G-plan furniture and these sort of shape pile rugs and posters of the Beatles up on the wall and these sort of iconic sort of 1960s lampshades and and things like that. But what, what it kind of ignored, though, was the fact this was social housing. <laughs> the people moving in 
would unlikely have been able to afford to buy wholly new 1960s furniture uh, to deck out their beautiful new flats. So in reality, there were probably would be a few things that were very much 1960s, but a lot of it would have been probably you know still like 1930s stuff, some Victorian stuff as well. So it really would have had a bit of a, a sort of um, mishmash of, of of different types of of furniture uh, in 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 this in this flat for this reason, and and so it, it was it was interesting. Therefore, that what was presented was uh, a bit of a fiction, an enticing one, but but a, but a, but a fiction nonetheless. The reality would have been much more uh, eclectic, purely as as a result of sort of just just the, the practicality and and the means of the people. Uh, occupying it. You're an architectural writer and curator and also the director of the Farrell Center at Newcastle University, a brand new public center for architecture and cities. So I'd love to hear a little bit about this and when does it open? We are opening to the public on the 22nd of April. And the, the, the rationale behind the center is to create a place where local people can go to find out about their city, its past and its present, and in the process get a get a sort of stake in in shaping its future. It emerges from the belief that architecture and planning should not be things that that happen behind closed doors, but that the public voice is absolutely central to them to creating places that people want to live in that people feel happy living in that they feel they have a sense of ownership and we'll be we'll be looking to sort of achieve this through a whole variety of, of, of different ways we'll be running uh, exhibition programs that, that kind of connect local issues and situations to concerns and themes that have regional national global uh, significance as well architecture has this ability to to obviously be intensely local but also connect to this much broader realm of, of ideas and situations which we'll really be trying to trying to tease out. And then alongside that we'll be running a whole range of of live programs or talks, roundtable meetings, workshops for schools, families, kids, but also offering our spaces to other groups, other people in the local community who, who whose missions intersect with ours, who have similar agendas. Where can we find you on the web and social media? So I'm uh, my, my website is owenhopkins.co.uk. I'm on Twitter intermittently at Owen underscore Hopkins and on Instagram at Owen Hopkins or one word. This has been so fascinating. I got lost in this book. I cannot thank you enough for coming on Decorating by the Book podcast. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast, Decorating by the Book.